to express my appreciation to the General Assembly Committee for giving me the privilege to open the Word of God this evening and to speak to you on the topic of reconciliation. Also, uh, very grateful for the privilege to even be here at the General Assembly. Uh, This past week, my wife, Roberta, had asked, uh, what are you looking forward to the most in terms of going to the General Assembly? And there are so many things that are so exciting about the General Assembly. And as I thought about it, one thing I said, I'm looking forward to seeing my old friends again, to to being able to get together with uh, dear brothers in the Lord, some who are uh, new in the ministry and others who have fought long and hard and to uh, be able to shake their hands and give them a hug and welcome them and enjoy their fellowship. It has been a a wonderful uh, General Assembly. God has met with us and has blessed us. And um, I really would like to take a moment to uh, express uh, my deep appreciation, not only for myself, but I believe for all of the delegates and visitors to uh, the dear saints of Grace Reformed Baptist Church, Rockford, Would you please uh, join with me in just showing our appreciation? The food, the service, the fellowship, you've gone over and above the call of duty, and we, we thank you very much for ministering to us. Well, would you join me one more time as we go before the throne of grace? that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word tells us of Philip the apostle when he was approached by the Greeks and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And when Philip and Andrew went and told our Lord He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as we come together this evening, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes of faith, that we would see Jesus, that we would see Jesus crucified, that we would see Jesus glorified. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the service this evening Lord, give your servant help and strength. May Christ increase, may I decrease, and may he get all the praise. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. When G.K. Chesterton was publicly asked the question, what is wrong with the world? He insightfully replied, I am. And that answer really hits the nail on the head as far as all of us, because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And there has been this age-old hostility between God and man. And it has been a hostility that has even affected our relationship with our fellow man. It all began on the day when our first parents turned their back upon the Lord, believing the words of the serpent instead of obeying God. Prior to the fall, man enjoyed a trustful, intimate, harmonious friendship with God. And yet we know that Adam ate the forbidden fruit in violation to God's command, and as our federal head, the guilt and the condemnation of that first sin has been imputed to the entire human race. Eden was the sanctuary of God, the first temple where God's manifested presence dwelt with Adam. But sin broke man's friendship with God, expelling him from Eden 
And the way back into God's presence was closed off by the cherubim and a flaming sword. It wasn't a flaming torch that would burn and not cut. And it wasn't just a sword that would cut and not burn. It was a flaming sword that would cut and burn. And who would now open the way back into God's presence? Jesus Christ and him alone. The promised skull-crushing seed of the woman. He is able to open the way back to God. But God and man are mortal enemies. Man is destitute of a single ounce of love for God. Man in his depraved condition, hates God with an evil and wicked malice that flows from a heart that is completely corrupt. Man has committed mutiny against the throne of the Most High. He hates God. And with his fist lifted to the sky, sinful man has revolted against heaven and is engaged in an all-out war against the Lord. He opposes God's honor, profanes his name, rejects his word, hates his kingdom, despises his son. And we see man's hostility and hatred toward God most vividly when God came into this world in the incarnation and man nailed him to a tree. And to this very day, if man could get his hands upon the incarnate Lord once again, he would endeavor to to destroy him. And we can sense the awful magnitude of such an offense by considering the exalted dignity of the God who has been so dishonored and offended. One who is exalted in majesty, who is infinite in his excellency, who is sovereign over all that he has made. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. But even so, God is also at enmity with man. He is angry with the sinner every day. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if God is our enemy, who in this world outside of Christ will stand before him on our behalf? Isn't it better by far to have God as your friend and the whole world as your enemy? than to have the whole world as your friend and God as your enemy? Because God is almighty, he can make us as miserable as he desires. As Jonathan Edwards would say, the bow of God's wrath is bent, justice bends the arrow at your heart. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that keeps the arrow from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most venomous serpent is in yours. Sin has brought alienation between God and man. As Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 tell us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. My friends, I mean this reverently when I say that God has a bone to pick with man. Because God's sacred law has been broken, his holy justice has been violated, 
and it must be satisfied before pardon and forgiveness can be granted. And it is here that we see the necessity of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is how God can be just in the justifier of those who believe in Jesus and his work on the cross for sinners. Here is why reconciliation was required and what it has accomplished. As you know, God created all of us in his image. We're created as relational beings. And the doctrine of reconciliation is a doctrine that involves relationships. And it's about conflict resolution. It aims to unite two parties that are separated. It implies that one party has given offense and the other party has taken offense, resulting in a relationship that is not only broken, but one that is in opposition. So instead of peace, there is hostility. Instead of friendship, there is enmity. Instead of communion, there is alienation. Instead of fellowship, there is separation. A wrong needs to be made right. The cause of displeasure must be removed. And those who are alienated must be reconciled in peace. And the restoration of good relations must once again be achieved. As John Murray put it in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied He shows the difference between propitiation, which Pastor Lindblad spoke on last night, and reconciliation. And he says, propitiation places in the focus of attention the wrath of God and the divine provision for the removal of that wrath. And reconciliation places in the focus of attention our alienation from God and the divine method of restoring us to his favor. And there are three points that I want to make regarding reconciliation this evening. The first being that reconciliation flows from God's love for his elect. It's important for us to understand from the the very beginning that the Lord Jesus Christ did not die in order to win the Father's love for those whom he has died. Now, some theologians assert that one reason Jesus died for sinners it was in order to get the Father to love them. But the Father does not love sinners because Jesus died for them. Rather, Jesus died for sinners because the Father already loved them. We're told in Ephesians 1.5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So God the Father sent his Son to die for those upon whom he had set his love from all eternity. And God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So God's love is the fountainhead, we could say, from which the stream of reconciliation flows. Paul makes this clear in the text that was read this evening in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. He writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And verse 8 shows us the love of God. It turns the spotlight on the love of the Father. We read, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And you'll notice that at the very beginning of chapter 5, standing at the very opening of this verse, is the peace that we have with God having been justified by faith. And there already we are given a glimpse into the reconciliation that God would make with rebellious man. 
There are a few essential truths that are set before us in this text. Uh, First is that it is God who initiates our reconciliation. Verse 8, again, shows that the death of Christ for sinners was a display of God's love. God, the Father, and God of peace entered into a covenant with his Son, the great shepherd of the sheep, in which Christ performed the condition of the covenant to take our sin and guilt and to suffer God's wrath in our place that he might purchase us with his shed blood. So reconciliation is ultimately grounded in the covenant of redemption in which we see God as the initiator of our salvation. In our London Baptist Confession in chapter 8, we read in paragraph 1, that it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified." So God is the one who has uh, initiated reconciliation. And if he has initiated such a glorious work, then we can have great confidence that, in fact, it will come to pass. If he had not initiated reconciliation, then none of us would be reconciled to God. None of us would probably even be here this evening. So God, the offended party, took the first steps toward reconciling sinful man to himself, just as the Lord God took the first steps in the Garden of Eden in pursuing Adam and Eve. They were the offenders. God was the offending party. And typically, the offending, the one who is offended feels like they should just wait until the offender comes to them and apologizes. But here we see that the one who was offended has taken the initiation. It is God who begins the work, and whatever God begins, he always finishes. Another essential truth set before us in Romans 5 is the fact that God designed the plan of reconciliation. He not only begins such a work, but he's the architect who designed the means of reconciliation. And what a sight to behold how the offended and holy God can be reconciled to offending and unholy sinners. And as the God of peace, he has on his part prepared all that is necessary to reconcile sinners to himself. The treaty of reconciliation was formed and approved in the court of heaven before time began. His glorious wisdom conceived a plan whereby without violating his justice or tarnishing his perfect holiness, he can meet man on the ground of mercy so that man can again become the friend of God. And I love the the text that uh, Pastor Waters quoted Uh, on uh, Tuesday morning from Psalm 85. It's always the danger when you're the last person to speak at a conference or a GA. You're thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to use that uh, text or that person took some of that thunder and what's going to be left for me to preach on? But it's it's so glorious, uh, Psalm 85, 10, and 11. It says that steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. There in that text we have a picture of reconciliation. Indeed, we have a picture of Calvary. God has designed such a plan in which he has appointed a mediator who could bridge the distance and heal the differences between God and man, thus affecting reconciliation. 
And of course, such a mediator must be completely innocent and free from any participation in man's offense in order that he might maintain the honor and interests of God and yet be able to sympathize with sinners. And it was out of love for his elect that God designed the whole machinery of reconciliation long before he ever set it into motion down the track of time. And we must see that sinful man is entirely passive here. God is the one who is active. He is the one who is reconciling us to himself. In verse 10 of this text, the the word enemies here in Romans 5, focuses more on God's holy hatred toward us than our unholy hatred toward him. And at the very time when God had every reason to detest us and had a holy hostility against us, yet out of love for us, he saved us. It was while we were looked upon by God as his enemies that Christ died for us. God himself has therefore removed the ground of alienation in sending his own son to die in our place, achieving reconciliation. Oh, what infinite grace and love. What profound wisdom and intelligence. Let us love and sing and wonder. Man could never have invented such a wonderful plan, and he never would have initiated it, even if he could have. No wonder angels long to look into these things. They gaze with wonder at God's amazing design. And in beholding the masterpiece of divine wisdom, should we not cry out, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. From him and through him and to him are all things To God be the glory. Amen. So reconciliation flows from God's love for his elect. And the second main point about reconciliation is that reconciliation is procured by Christ's death for his elect. Procured is the language of our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 5, where we read, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. And so if God the Father is the author of reconciliation, God the Son is the agent of reconciliation. And we see this certainly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can never separate the work from Christ from the person of Christ, for what he has done always goes with who he is. And we know that Jesus Christ is the infinite God-man, fully God and fully man, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Deity and humanity must first be united in the person of Jesus Christ. And here we're already given a glimpse of the doctrine of reconciliation, God and man must first be united in the person of Jesus Christ so that God and man might be reunited through reconciliation. In the incarnation, God has come down to man, as they say, in order to bring man up to God. And certainly the birth of Christ speaks of this as we sing this evening. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. Jesus had to be both God and man. For only God could purchase us 
for God, which alludes to the doctrine of redemption. And only God could rescue us from God, which points us to the doctrine of propitiation. And only God could bring us back to God, which is the doctrine of reconciliation. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He who brings us to God is none other than God himself, clothed in our humanity, in order that he might be the mediator of a new and better covenant. You know, in human conflicts, it's always nice to have a mediator, someone that can stand between two opposing parties in order to bring them together. And doesn't the infinite dignity of Christ's person give credibility to the efficacy of his reconciling work. Because he is God, his cross work was sufficient enough to absolve, justify, heal, pardon, and reconcile the worst of sinners. We also see in this reconciliation that it's the work of Christ. Peace is a very important word regarding reconciliation. It's the result of reconciliation. Where there had been hostility, enmity, warfare, after reconciliation, there is peace. And in Leviticus chapter 3, under the old covenant ceremonial system, peace offerings of bulls, sheep, and goats were to be brought to the priest to be sacrificed. And the offerer would lay his hands on the head of the animal, and the animal would be killed, and the priest would take the blood from that animal and throw it against the altar. The peace offering was an expression of fellowship between the Lord and the one who was making the peace offering. The peace offering pointed to Christ's sacrifice that would one day establish peace with God. And this is brought out for us elsewhere in Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So our peace and reconciliation with God flows from the piercing, the crushing, the chastisement of Christ by the Father. And the peace offering also points us to Christ's high priestly work. Reconciliation is a product of Christ's priestly office, as set forth again in our confession, chapter 8, paragraph 10. It speaks of the three offices of Christ. And it reads, This number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect of our ignorance we stand in need of his prophetical office, And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And we see in one text that Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, the person in the work of Christ are are set before us under the light of reconciliation. Paul writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Upon the cross, the Father exacted from the Son the payment required 
to satisfy divine justice and inflicted upon Jesus the punishment deserved for our sin in order that he might remove the barrier to to reconciliation. Remember how sin became the barrier to God in the garden and how man was barred from coming into the holy presence of God in that garden temple by the cherubim and the flaming sword. The way back to God was effectively blocked. And later we find another barrier into God's presence with the curtain in Israel's tabernacle and later in Jerusalem's temple. And as you know, that curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. The curtain of that tabernacle was made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. And it also had cherubim woven into it. The cherubim guarded God's throne. It was said that this curtain was woven of 72 cords, and each of these cords had 24 strands. And the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was believed to have been about 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. It was said to have had a thickness that was close to four inches in thickness. And it was designed to keep people from entering into the presence of God represented by the most holy place. Only the high priest could enter, and that was once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the curtain was not meant to keep God in, but to keep people out. I mean, it was a barrier keeping people from entering the presence of God. It was like a big billboard, if you will, that that said in large letters, Keep out. Stay away. Death to all who enter. But at the exact moment that Jesus died on the cross, you remember the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom by God himself. Praise be to his name. Because the way back into God's presence has been opened up now. God himself was pulling down the barriers. And by his death, Jesus has given us access back into God's presence. The torn curtain proclaims reconciliation accomplished. It now says, come on in. And like what the writer to Hebrews says, chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's the language of reconciliation. Let us draw near. Let us come. Hebrews 4.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So the event of Christ's death was a reconciling event. Christ's death did more than tear a curtain. It demolished the Berlin Wall of hostility between God and man. So on the cross of Calvary, Christ dealt with the cause of our alienation, That's the place where hostilities have been resolved and friendship with God has been restored. This is conflict resolution at its best. Here's how Paul puts it elsewhere in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. A.W. Pink says, At the cross we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the spotless purity of the law, the unbending character of God's government, and the righteous outflow of his mercy unto hell deserving transgressors. And this is shown for us elsewhere by Paul in another important text regarding reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul writes, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Outside of Jesus Christ, God is an all-consuming fire. But in Christ, God is reconciling his elect, not imputing their sins against them. This is the God-in-Christ act of reconciliation. This text in 2 Corinthians 5 shows us the forensic character of reconciliation. For God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It was the objective work of Christ. God was not counting our trespasses against us because he was counting our trespasses against Christ. Christ, as he hung there on the cross of Calvary, was the one who became alienated from the Father. He was the one who was counted guilty and condemned. He was the one who tasted the separation from God. He was the one who came under the wrath of God that we might be reconciled back to God. So Paul was viewing the reconciling activity as an accomplished fact there. It was that work that was fully and completely accomplished once and for all at Calvary. God has removed the grounds of our alienation. And it was said that whereas justification is our legal standing in court before our judge... Reconciliation is our personal relationship with our Father in the home. Reconciliation is the fruit of justification, for not until are we justified by faith can we have peace with God. And so we can have confidence that all those for whom Christ has died they will be reconciled to God. And oh, what solid ground we can stand upon when calling sinners to obey the gospel and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't you think the message of reconciliation would be welcome news to a world that has been alienated from God? The frown of God's wrath darkens the horizon of rebellious man's life. His conscience testifies to him that he and God are not just strangers. They're mortal enemies. Wouldn't you expect sinful man to quickly flee from the wrath to come, knowing that God is against him? Why would someone still hold out and resist God? Why would they still try to fight God? One man going into battle against a million soldiers makes more sense than fighting against God. 
And unless the Holy Spirit brings this good news deep within the heart with that convicting power, no one will turn to God. And that brings us to my third point this evening about reconciliation. And that is reconciliation is applied by the Holy Spirit to God's elect. God's, the Father is the author. God the Son is the agent. God the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it. It's true that reconciliation has already been accomplished, but sinners are not reconciled to God until they look to the cross by faith, trusting alone in the finished work of Christ. Then they find peace with God. And this involves the application of Christ's finished work to the sinner by the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, the Spirit brings us to see and to feel the evil of sin, to apprehend the holy justice of our offended God, to have a sense of the wrath that is upon us. The Spirit works within us to look away from our own efforts, to look to the cross and see the Savior who was nailed there for sinners like us. The Holy Spirit works through the faithful preaching of God's word by his ministers. May we as pastors faithfully preach the message of reconciliation. To make known to sinners God's willingness to receive sinners who will come to him through his son. And there are at least five responses to the message of reconciliation that we can take home with us this evening. The first is that if you haven't been reconciled, then the first response is be reconciled to God. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He is urging his readers to remain no longer in their state of alienation from God, but, but to enter into the relation of peace and favor with God. And we receive this reconciliation by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ and his perfect work on the cross. God in Christ now holds out that olive branch of peace to those of you who are here tonight and are still in rebellion against the throne of the Most High. To call a sinner to be reconciled to God is the call to call them to trust in Christ and in Him crucified. Charles Spurgeon said, I do not know that an archangel could desire a happier or better work than to stand here and speak on behalf of the God of the whole earth and to labor to bring back God's rebellious children to him. So, dear friend, if you're here tonight, let me ask you, have you been reconciled to God? You who were far off, have you been brought near You who were once in darkness, have you been brought into the light of God's reconciled countenance? Has his anger turned away from you? Can you sing, my God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. And if you can't, then lay down your weapons of resistance and rebellion. You cannot win your personal war against God. If you are not at peace with God, how can you even go to sleep tonight? How can you go about your daily business knowing that God is your enemy? Consider the consequences that await you if you die unreconciled. Consider the judgment, the hell, the torment. Consider the suffering and the anguish that awaits you if you refuse to be reconciled to God. Tonight, God sends his ambassador. Tomorrow, he may send to you his executioner. Be reconciled to God. Look, the the torn curtain stands before you, and the hand that tore it is held out to you. Take hold and never let it go. I implore you, be reconciled to God. 
A second response is that if you have been reconciled, well, then give thanks to God. It's been said that those who are monuments to God's mercy ought to be trumpets to his praise. Those who have been reconciled have peace with God. It's so good to know that no matter what happens to us in this world, we're going to heaven. We're going to be with the Lord of glory for eternity. So live a life of gratitude as you bask in the warmth of God's presence and peace. Third, a third response is to be holy before God. I mean, we're reconciled by a holy God. And what fellowship can light have with darkness? Paul writes in Colossians 1.21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He chose us to be holy. And if we are at peace with God, this peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Fourth, if we've been reconciled, we should preach the message of reconciliation. God calls out of the world sinners to himself. And he calls to the world of sinners through the voice of reconciled ministers who are his ambassadors. The very office of the pastoral ministry is an argument for the fall. For why would you send messengers of peace if there is no war? Do you see yourselves as God's ambassadors, pastor? Do you see yourself as those who've been called out of this world into fellowship with Christ and sent to proclaim this gospel to those who are dying? Do you recognize that God is making his appeal through your preaching when you stand in the pulpit? And in your preaching, is there anything that sounds like pleading with sinners? Preach the message to all people. And then fifthly, live at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18 tells us that if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, do what? Live at peace with all men. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 We're exhorted to strive for peace with everyone. Sin not only alienates and separates us from God, it alienates and separates us from our fellow men as well. But if someone has no genuine love for God who is all good and perfect, how can they have genuine love for their fellow man who is sinful and imperfect? So our vertical reconciliation with God is the incentive for our horizontal reconciliation with one another. If God is the father of reconciliation, then we should show ourselves as his children by being quick to reconcile with others. A friend of mine once told me about a man who loved to argue so much that he would only eat food that disagreed with him. So stop being disagreeable. How can we rejoice in the reconciliation Christ has won for us and then turn around and refuse to be reconciled with our brothers? When a person refuses to be reconciled with another, it will affect their relationship with God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, What are you to do? Leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So our horizontal relations will affect our vertical worship. By the spring of 1739, George Whitfield was the recognized leader of England's Great Awakening. He had come to embrace Calvin's doctrines, including the doctrine of election and predestination. But John Wesley, his dear friend and co-laborer, was an outspoken Arminian who opposed Calvinism. 
God blessed Whitfield's open-air preaching with thousands of converts in and around London that year. And Whitfield entrusted these converts to John Wesley's care as he prepared to set sail for America toward the end of 1739. And when Whitfield returned back to London in March of 1741, he discovered that his congregation of some 20,000 had dwindled to two or three hundred. What happened? Well, while Whitfield was away in America, Wesley turned the hearts of his people against the doctrine of election, preaching against it, and he published his sermon on free grace, which made scathing attacks on the doctrine of election. And by turning Whitfield's congregation against election, Wesley succeeded in turning Whitfield's congregation against Whitfield. Whitfield wrote in the letter, Brother Wesley has so prejudiced the people against me that those who were my spiritual children would not so much as come and see me. And when his old converts saw Whitfield walking down the street, they would cross to the other side and pass by with their fingers in their ears so as to preserve them from the contamination of one Calvinistic word. And it broke Whitfield's heart to find his closest friend hijacking his ministry and stealing his sheep. And they had a falling out over their serious differences in doctrine for a long time. But eventually their old friendship was entirely reestablished and they displayed brotherly love to each other to the very end. And at Whitfield's death, his funeral sermon was preached at his request by none other than his opponent, his former opponent, John Wesley. They had been reconciled, even though their serious doctrinal differences continued. These men of God who preached on the need to make peace with God also knew the importance of being at peace with each other, and they took the necessary steps to reconcile their broken friendship. Through Christ, we all have access by one spirit to the Father. So we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So may we glory in the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. And may God be pleased to grant us all peace with God and peace with one another through the finished work of Christ, our Reconciler. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we offer to you our praise and thanksgiving for initiating our reconciliation, for loving us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and demonstrating your love and sending your Son that he might achieve that perfect work and reconcile us unto you. And we rejoice in such a Savior who is that perfect mediator between a sinful man and a holy God. And where there was alienation and opposition and hostility, now there is reconciliation and friendship and love. Oh, how we rejoice. Lord, send us home from here this evening with the doctrine of reconciliation burning in our hearts. May we seek to make peace with God and peace with one another. May we be preachers of this glorious message, and may you be pleased to own it and to work through it to the salvation of sinners. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.